Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Echukotai, or In My Statutes, which covers the end of the book of Vayikra, or Leviticus, chapters 26 and 27. So as we get started here, we're actually going to be beginning with the Haftarah, but not just any Haftarah, but a, you could say an alternate Haftarah here. Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 5. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who chose good prophets and was pleased with their words which they spoke in truth. Blessed are you, Lord, who chose the Torah, Moshe his servant, Israel his people, and the prophets and apostles of truth and righteousness. So, what we're taking a look at here is Acts chapter 1. Why? Because. Here we are today is the 42nd day of the Omar, the count toward Shavuot. And the 40th day, as we'll read in this passage, is a very, very special day. It's Acts chapter 1, starting at 1, verse 1, going through verse 5. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Yeshua began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God, gathering them together he commanded them not to leave Yerushalayim, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, You heard of me, you heard of from me, for Yohanan baptized with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Amen. So that's the starting point for what we're going to be talking about, because one of the key aspects of Shavuot is, like we've been talking about in recent weeks, is about redemption and salvation. And as we've seen in pre- previous weeks, the redemption and salvation are related but different. They're related in the sense that you must be redeemed to be saved. But you can be redeemed and not saved, which is what one of those sobering messages that a lot of people worry about when you read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 27, and it talks about, you know, if you forsake this sacrifice, there is no more sacrifice for you. And a lot of people take a look at that and go, ooh, where is this unpardonable sin that I have committed at some point in time? But... That is something that follows a long discussion that started back at the beginning of that letter in 10 chapters before. And the whole point of it is, if you forget or forsake this sacrifice, meaning of 
Yeshua, like he mentioned in a parable, there is no other way in. You're not going to be climbing in a window because then you are a thief and a robber in the house of God. And the thief and the robber doesn't make it far into the house of God, into the kingdom. You can't steal your way in through some other way. There is only one way in. So that is one of the key lessons that we have of the whole Shavuot, the Passover, the Bikarim first fruits, and the 50 days that lead up to Shavuot is this point of redemption and salvation. And the salvations we see, we see several salvations that happen. We see, you know, the 10th plague broke the back of Mitzrayim once. Then we see the crossing of the sea broke the back of Mitzrayim twice. And at that point, finally, until set free. But actually, there had to be a third breaking of the back of Mitzrayim. And you read about that in the prophets, like in Ezekiel, where they talk about the fact that Mitzrayim would be broken. Egypt would be broken. Because why? Instead of going from Egypt and not going that way again, they went back. They went back because they were under threat from forces that came in. First was the harbinger of that was with Assyria. Then the big one came with Babylon that came in. So where did Israel turn to? They turned to the one who delivered them from the bondage in Mitzrayim the first time? No, they turned to Egypt. So thus, one of the things you see is the foretelling that the Lord was going to be breaking the back of Mitzrayim. Why? Because that was the mighty one. That was the rock that Israel was clinging to and seeing as solid. So heaven had to show Israel that there was a rock and it wasn't Mitzrayim. It wasn't some power that was going to come. Because through the prophet Daniel, writing about the same time as Ezekiel, a little bit later, was revealing what? That Babylon, which was used as a tool to break the mighty Mitzrayim, would be broken itself and would be one of a succession of powers that would come. Succession of powers that would come that were all risen up and taken down at the whim of the creator of heaven and earth. So they themselves, the mighty empires, rose and fell by the graces and the will of heaven. So that's, you know, that's the message that we have today. What rock do we cling to? Do we cling to rocks which tend to be just as temporary, just as shaky, as Mitzrayim proved to be? 
or do we cling to the rock? <laughs> As we see the rock that traveled with them. So, as we kind of move on further with this, just a little bit of a recap of these two. And usually the, the two parasha are, go together, Leviticus 25 and Leviticus 25 20, and 20, 26, 27 go together in this double package of Bahar and also um, the Bechukotai together. And one of the messages that we have together is Leviticus 25. We went through, that's about what? The Obel, the Shemitah, the sabbatical year, the Jubilee year together, and that being freedom. And then you have 26, 27. So in, in 25, you have the, what we had talked about in that particular passage, where you have a lot of the echoes of Shavuot, of Pentecost, are there in the Yobel and the Shemitah, the cycles of seven, and then seven Shemitahs plus one year, so seven sevens of years plus one, then is the Jubilee year, the Yobel year. But then as we've looked, the Yobel, this great calling out, was there at Sinai. So this calling out was at Sinai as well. So you have the connection between Sinai and the freedom that is expressed in, in uh, the Jubilee, the Yobel, and in the Shemitah in the sabbatical year together. So thus, when you have the Apostle Yaakov when he, in his letter in James, when he says the law of freedom and with the Yobel, you are doing what throughout the land? Proclaiming freedom. That there would be a trumpet that would go throughout the land to proclaim freedom. It's even on our Liberty Bell quoting from this particular passage related to the Yobel. You will proclaim freedom throughout the land. So, this proclaiming of freedom tied to the revelation of the Lord at Sinai, this giving of the, the testimony of God, who the Lord actually is, all that going together. So thus you've got this connection between the Ten Commandments, the, the law of God there crystallized in the Ten Commandments, and the cycles of freedom the cycles of freedom and release and also of freedom from bondage because that's a big part of what the Shemitah and the Yobel were. One of the things that we had just read about here in the passage today is that if you do not give the land its rest, what then happens? Yes, it's an if-then statement. If you do not pay attention to what was just mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 25, what then happens? You are going to be removed from the land. So if you won't let the land rest, the Lord will let the land rest by giving you a time out and sending you somewhere else. Now, what was that? And he did. That's what we call the exiles. 
But this is one of those and a kind of key messages here is that what is the purpose of the exiles? Just vindictiveness that you just had. Um, the Lord said, okay, you won't listen to me, so I'm just going to let you have it. Just going to beat you until you pay attention. What did we see here? The whole point of that was to say, I will turn around. I was wrong. So that being a key picture of what is actually going on here with not only just these instructions we're, we're talking about here, but the various instructions that we saw earlier. Yes. They come up, had come up last week regarding the same topic, which is interesting. I talked about this with my parents uh, later on that night regarding this topic. Because as you started out, he pointed out that, so we, as I brought last week, you could read deemed and not saved, right? It's possible because you can you know, reject that. You can be redeemed and saved and still not receive the promise because people of Israel came out of Egypt, but they didn't not all made the promised land. What caught my attention, I didn't think about until later on, was that there was a family that was neither redeemed nor saved, but yet received the promised land. That was Moses' father-in-law. Mm. It's the method which he did it is the shocking part as how he did it. What's like none of us? Ever went through Egypt, like physically. We weren't physically there. We didn't go through the Red Sea. We, 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 we spiritually answered, but we didn't physically do it. But his father-in-law, when, when, when Moses explained everything to him, he said, now I know, or I realize, he's attached himself to it. Yep. So you can, once you, even if you didn't go through the redemption process, salvation process, once you realize what it is and attach yourself to it, it is now yours and then you get to receive the, 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 the promised land. But it's much like this instruction we're going through Vayikra. The people, they know a certain amount. Obviously, they, they're getting God's telling, do this, do not know to that, yada, yada, yada. Um, but when, 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 you, when you take the instructions to heart, I'm going to do this, mm. you attach yourself to it. Yes. And those, the people which he, as you point out, he took a, you know, a time out, <laughs> as you pointed out, for a whole like, generation or so. Um, Clearly, they themselves, though they received the land, didn't attach themselves to the way God said, you will live the land this way. That attachment was important. And Moses' father-in-law did. Well, I don't know it personally, but as far as the idea that, hey, I, I want this. I'm going to attach myself to it. I'm going to do God's way. Because he was a Midianite priest or something. I don't know, whatever, what kind of gods he used to worship. Who knows? But he changed his, his, his worldview at that moment. Yeah, and that's one of the great prophecies that we have related to Shavuot is about a gathering in of a harvest. There's a harvest at the beginning of the year leading up to Shavuot. There's a harvest at the end of the year down at Sukkot and Tabernacles and into the eighth day. And what are these all about? You know, we always talk about the, in the Jewish tradition, they talk about the, <laughs> the voices there at Sinai speaking to whom? Just the initiated, speaking to all the nations. So thus, you get even the, um, the symbols of Shavuot, the unleavened loaves, or the leavened loaves of Shavuot that are lifted up. This being a part of a message that, yes, went to Israel, but it was a message that went to more than Israel. And 
the message, sadly, even went through Israel because of Israel's time out and spread to the places where the northern tribes went and even the southern tribes when they went off to, to uh, Babylon and then finally Persia and then coming back. There were a lot that had that message as well. So thus, when you see Shavuot, Shavuot is a message for not just a select clique of people, but it is a message for all the nations through a group of people. So like what he's talking about there, you had with uh, Yitro grafted into the family of God. What is another thing that's read this time of year, traditionally? Ruth, yeah, Ruth. So you have another one where you have the great lines that come from that book. What is it? Your God will be my God, and your people will be my people. Doesn't that sound familiar? Didn't one of the prophets talk about that when the people of Israel were in timeout, where they were said, they were not my people, but then they would be called my people. So just as you had with Moab and those of Moab, relatives, so to speak, going all the way back to the days of Lot, they were grafted in to the family. So you had Israel was brought back into the family. But one of the key lessons of what we just read here in this passage here is that what is the key to the kingdom? Something that Yeshua emphasized quite strongly. It's the key to the kingdom DNA. Just because I happen to be descended from somebody, there you go. There's my golden ticket. I just kind of wave my DNA in front of uh, the, at the pearly gates, and it just recognizes my DNA, and the door is open, and I just walk right in because of my DNA. Oh, yay, my DNA. No. It's, no, it's not about DNA whatsoever. Rather than what was Yeshua's response, where you had people were going, oh, yay, my DNA. Uh, Avraham was my father. What was the response? Yes, can make sons of Avraham out of rocks. So you say, might say, oh, the nation's dumb as rocks. Well, those that came into Israel's influence and actually heard the words of God said, we've heard God's with you. So you had Yitzra, you had you, Roots, you had Rahab. There as we see, yes, Cornelius. And on and on and on it goes. Because this is not just the story about the God of the Hebrews doing something over there somewhere and doesn't really involve anybody else in the world. No, you're talking about the creator of heaven and earth making an entrance back into people that have drifted off over time and farther and farther and farther away. So thus, this is something for all nations. But the key part of this message through Israel is this is who God actually is. Your folks out there are grasping around in the dark about who God actually is. 
but do you actually know who God really is? What does having a relationship with God really mean? And that is, it means everything, but there are lots of ideas about how you can have a relationship with God. You know, the frequent, frequent uh, comment that people make is, well, you know, God and I have an understanding. How? How do you have any idea what this understanding is? But what is another word for an understanding? Agreement. What is another word for an agreement? Contract. And another word for a contract is a covenant. Well, boy, now we're getting to language that kind of sounds like what we're looking at here today. So, thus, how do you know about any of the terms of a contract or an agreement or this and that and the other? Just make it up? Yeah, good luck with that in court. You know, just, well, I thought it said this. Yeah, it was, a, it was, it was, kind, of a, it, it was kind of an interesting, <laughs> you might say a silly little illustration of things, but uh, our HOA board ran into a, a challenge here where um, people wanted to replace their fence. And we just said, build it just like the fence that's right next to it. So they submitted in what they were planning to do. And we looked at it and said, okay. But then when they built it, we're like, wait a minute, that doesn't look like what's right next to it. It's the same fence line that goes down, it goes and stops, and it's a completely different design going on into the new section. Well, when you look at it, they had described it accurately, but they built it backwards. So what they said that they were going to be facing out was facing in, and what they said was going to be facing in was facing out. So. It's like, you understand, okay, this is the way we wanted it to be built. Just look at that and do that. That was our understanding. Say, okay, go ahead, rebuild your fence, but just make it look like what was right next to it. So they built it, and they were working hard for hours and hours and hours right next to the fence line that was obviously built quite differently. So... That's just a slightly small little illustration. I, you could say a call of a homer uh, description of what we're looking at here, where in the small parts, if you can have this understanding between people of how something is going to get built, and you're like right next to it, and you should be referencing what's going on, and you have an understanding, then how much more, when God has told us who he is, how we relate to him, should we then say, oh, okay, this is how you want this to be done, and then go forward with it? Yes. Well, there is a difference between contract and covenant, and yes. it requires blood. <laughs> yes. So you have to, think, elevate our understanding of covenant. Yes. Which because it comes in play with marriage, because people treat marriage very casually as a loose contract, but the covenant is the blood relationship. Yeah, which then goes into what the uh, seemingly arcane discussion in Leviticus 27, which is, can we, see, that's a strange way to end the book. We're just this long laundry list of uh, different sort of calculations and valuations and such. But what it does emphasize is just what you're talking about there is how are you, you could say, underwriting your contract to move it between a 
contract that has lots of loopholes to one that is sealed with something very significant, which is why you have the idea in Hebrew of katav or cutting a contract. Even some, it's an archaic term for drafting a contract, but that's where it comes from, the idea of cutting a contract. And the Native Americans, the yeah. blood yes, brothers. the the blood brothers, yeah, that that uh, comes across in a number of cultures in a similar idea. That uh, are you willing to bleed for it? How serious is your commitment to this? So, where yes. did they get that idea? Where did they get that <laughs> idea? Yes, indeed. All right. Any other uh, thoughts before we move on further with this? All right. Well, one of the things in this particular section is, you could say, the heart of the matter, what we're really talking about. And then in Leviticus 26, there's a couple of these heart of the matter passages in these two chapters. You know, if you walk in my statutes and keep my, co- my commandments so as to carry them out in Leviticus 26, verse 3. So from this, we get some terms that you might hear on a regular basis. For example, like uh, for halach. And, you know, for, for example, with halach, meaning to walk or go. And thus you get with the idea of the halacha, which is a teaching or a way of walking. In other words, a way of life. And so thus, in Devarim, as we go forward, we're going to be first going into Bimidbar or Numbers, and then we go into Deuteronomy. But one of the, the key parallels to the revelation of God to the second generation coming out of Mitzrayim that you find in Deuteronomy is what we sing every Shabbat is in the Shabbat in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9 that picture, how you walk. And it's corollary passage there in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 1, which is the, you could say, the, re, the revisiting of the Ten Commandments for that second generation. So in the Shema, a key part of that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So, Thus, you see all of these aspects of it involves this way of walking. And this way of walking is not just a casual sort of thing. It is a how you go through your whole life is how you are walking this out. Your halakha, your practices, are not just kind of mottos you put up on a nice little frame and have nice design for it with a kind of a colorful thing oh that's a nice bit of decoration for your house no this is how you are actually living 
it's different from saying decoration in your house versus when you walk into like a, a restaurant and you'll see up on the wall some places well they'll have these large print rules or like if you go into like a a um like going to a public pool or something they'll have the rules up on the wall in large letters those aren't just nice ideas that is this is how this place works is with or you get kicked out <laughs> yes alex even back to what your hoa was talking about i mean uh god generally spells it out mm. sometimes with an hoa is like dealing with my crew just do it like we did it the last time man there's a lot of gray area there so it ends up just like it did the last time hey i got another way of doing it this is what they say to each other it'll it'll look good just you know so uh, there god spells it out a little more it's spelled out on the wall of the pool right yes <laughs> Yeah, yeah, to to a to a certain degree, but some of those things are just uh, sometimes a little bit vague, and that is there where the way of walking comes into into play. You know, we've talked on many occasions about the things related to what Shabbat means. What does keeping observing the Shabbat actually mean? You know, that is sometimes frustratingly vague in what. You know, we want the long list of the do's and don'ts in there. But in a lot of cases, it is extremely vague, other than stop. And the stop just doesn't mean you, and then you make everybody around you slave away. No, this is a general stopping for not only you, but everybody in your realm of influence, inside your gate, so to speak. Yes. The principle where um, if you have a way of walking, you're not seeking for what can I get away with, as <laughs> yes. opposed to what should I be doing. There's two different ways to do it. I, 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 what can I get away with is what, where, where are the rails, where are the limits, how, can I, how far can I squeeze these limits, as opposed to what should I be doing. If you have a way of walking, a style of doing things, this, this is the way, this is the purpose why I'm doing it, it avoids the, the intent of trying to find what can I get away with. Yes. And that indeed is a, a key part of the chapter 27, the ones on the vows that we, we close this out with. So when we get there, that is going to be a huge topic of the discussion. But in Deuteronomy 5.1, with this recapitulation of uh, the Ten Commandments, it says, Then Moshe summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I am speaking in your hearing, that you may learn or lamad in hebrew learn them to observe them to shamar which is to guard them and uh, to guard them carefully or asa so the idea of asa is to do or to make shamar is to guard and lamad is to learn so learning guarding and doing so just, just think about that. Of the instructions of God, you have to first learn what they are, then you have to guard them to make sure that they last, not only through your life and not only from one encounter with God to the next, but then also to what? Next generations, to future generations, that they are guarded and protected. And how do you guard them? You actually do them. 
they are a part of your life. I know that's one of the most significant things that I honestly just have a huge challenge with with my with my coworkers is that any sort of discussions that I have about the kingdom of God have to be in the context that I am a trustworthy person. And I have huge problems with over-promising and under-delivering. So I have a huge problem with that because then what, what message am I giving about God in the kingdom? Over-promising and under-delivering. So all these promises in there, oh, well, I guess it's just a bunch of talk, just like you. So that is a huge problem I have. So thus, I know one thing that I always have to watch out for is that I make my promises stick and I follow through with them because then I can then talk about, hey, you know, the one who keeps me going, keeps me toward my goals is the same one that keeps going towards the goals that are written down and revealed to all the world. So, yes, so the, the instructions of God are just not for study. Learn, guard, do. Those are the huge uh, lessons that we get out of the words of God in this. Well, do, and in the doing is teaching. Because just like with the Shema, you are walking with them, so thus you are teaching them, passing those things on, guarding them for the next generations, so that the next generations just don't hear these things and go, yeah, 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 okay. Yeah, we, we hear what you're saying, but your, your life is nothing like that. I know I struggle with that a lot, is that am I uh, living out life in a way that if you <laughs> were to take a moral snapshot of me you know not just like some sort of thing that you've uh, spiffed up in photoshop or something and and uh, glitzed off you kind of smooth out all the wrinkles and maybe give yourself a digital tan or you know digital um blush or makeup or eye eyeliner stuff but if you were to take a moral snapshot and then just post that oh jeff yes Oh, he was a schlub today. No, don't you just want to be like that? No. That is where we look at how we're actually living life and is that actually portraying, portraying the ways of God. One of the interesting things then as we go into this next chapter or finishing out with chapter 26 is this kind of very interesting thing. You probably heard about it. Uh, Back in March, there was a lot of hoopla that was made over this discovery on Mount Ebal. We're going to be learning about that when we get into Deuteronomy chapter 27, also mentioned there in Joshua chapter 8. They're about, what, the Mount of Curses and the Mount of Blessings. And on Mount Ebal, they found a folded over um, piece of lead. So. This person that made this had taken lead, pounded it out flat, folded it over, pounded that down, 
and then use that as a like a tablet to write upon and they wrote this passage there it's uh and ends up being 40 words in ancient hebrew of a curse and it's been one translation that's that's taken to it is you know cursed 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 by the god and then that's it's not the tetragrammaton but it's the trigrammaton of y uh, h w or a yod a hey and a um I guess that would be it's the ancient uh, vav or the wa sound wa or v depending on how you want to go with that so curse 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 by the god yahweh uh, you will die cursed cursed you will surely die Cursed by Yahweh, cursed, cursed, cursed. Wow. Um, that's, that's pretty epic, yeah, but it's uplifting. Well, fittingly enough, it's on the Mount of Curses, so lots of lots of curses in there. But one of the key things that this is showing is not only that um, the people, and this is dated back to 1400 to 1200 BC, that date should sound somewhat familiar, because that's right around the time of the exodus and then the entering into the land, roughly in that within a couple hundred years of that. So you are saying, well, these people could write back then, which is a huge thing, because some of the people who come up with those crazy ideas, like the book of Deuteronomy was, was concocted in the post-exilic period of like the up to, you know, either 500 BC or after is from the idea, well, they just didn't write. There are a bunch of, you know, sun-stroked goat herders out there. So they didn't really know how to do anything like writing down. And they certainly couldn't written down the Torah or anything like that. Couldn't write down Genesis, couldn't write down Exodus. Now that stuff was concocted much, much, much later because they were a bunch of illiterate people. Well, well, quite literate actually. And uh, the names for uh, Yahweh goes back a long, 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 long way. So that's one of the key lessons that we have there is that, yes, when we're seeing these accounts like at Mount Ebal, yeah, this actually happened. And these people were actually in the land and actually doing the things that are recorded in there. But as we move on into this chapter, this chapter just gets incredibly depressing. <laughs> but when you see that, well, we'll be seeing these kinds of depressing things like you see in Deuteronomy chapter 28. We'll encounter that yet again where we see curses. Again, this is something that is seen in other bits of literature where you have some important document. And at the end of it, it's... You know, like if you ever seen one of the modern contracts and you got the, you got like all the important stuff and then you got like pages and pages and pages of fine print, just pages and you're like, good grief. If you ever done like a rental document or worse yet, even a, um, a mortgage for a house, it just goes on and on and on reams and reams of paper in this. Well, this is actually a goes way way back and in ancient times yeah they had that sort of thing but rather than blah 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 like it is today there is important stuff in the fine print that is in, 
encapsulated in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy and the messages that they are bringing forward rather than just blah, 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 boilerplate, who cares stuff that is just thrown in there to trip you up in court when the lawyers come after you. No, this is actually in there. Do you understand what is actually being said here? Do you understand the importance of this? There is a whole lot of benefits of moving forward with this. We call those blessings. That's the blessing section. But do you understand how serious this relationship is here that we have to have consequences in here? And these consequences are just not like the gotcha, make you feel good sort of things, but they are for what purpose? For life. So that you know what it is you're getting yourself into. I mean, that's a, that is a problem that we have in today's society. You'll say people will try to break down various barriers of this and that and the other and not ever tell you, okay, these are the things they'll tell you all about the blessing, so to speak, but not about the curses. And the curses are for people will say, well, if you head down this road, da, 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 this will happen. It's one of the things of wisdom, and you'll see that in the Proverbs, that one of my favorite passages is in there. It says, you know, one man's way seems right until what? Another person answers. Or basically you get the uh, cross-examination, so to speak, or the person brings in the other side into it. In my profession, that's supposed to be what you do. Supposed to be that you are presenting a reader of a news story with an accurate depiction of what's going on. And you say, oh, okay, you may not ever really know, but you were supposed to be presenting the various views of this so then the reader can look at this and weigh all the different views and positions of it, both people who are really excited about something and those that are thinking that it's just a pile of garbage. Put those all together so that you at least know, okay, well, maybe this is a good idea. I'll go forward with it. But at least you've been warned about it. And are the warnings credible? Are they warnings serious? Are the warnings just spiteful? Or are the warnings say, I love you. Please stop. You're headed toward destruction. So what we have here in the end of Leviticus, the end of Deuteronomy, is the, I love you, please stop. You're going the wrong way. I mean, you see that really in the heart-wrenching passages that talk about, I've set before you life and death. Choose life, not, please choose death so I can smite you. No, that is, that's the, the caricature of what the word of God is. No, choose life. Because we just read this here in chapter 26. Because even after the, quote, smiting happens, it says, I'm not going to leave you, but I'm going to bring you back. Bring you back in. So that is one of the, the important things to remember in these passages, that they are there to present 
an accurate picture of what is actually going to happen and what happens when you have the slide down. One of the things that people will say, oh, you're bringing up the slippery slope thing. Well, as we've mentioned before, the slippery slope is only a logical fallacy if you just say, well, it'll just go downhill. But if you have the reasons for saying that there is such a thing as um, moral and spiritual gravity that will drag you down if you do nothing about it, that if you head down certain roads, they will just tend to go further and further and further and further away. If you have those things that you spell out, then the slippery slope is not only valid, but it ends up being prophetic because you're saying, yes, this is what will happen as the slide continues downward. Yes. Yeah, I think of it this way in terms, I don't think of it as slippery. I think of it more as one precedent upon another precedent. It's a, you know, working in the legal field, you think a lot about precedent, meaning that when a one law, particular law, is, is established in a particular way, somebody takes another situation and they use that precedent to apply it to their situation. And as you do that, with that line upon line, if you will, eventually you will get to a destination that maybe the original precedent didn't expect to happen but someone with wisdom could totally predict that that's exactly where it would go. Mm. So it's nothing slippery about it. It goes line upon line, and it just will go to that destination. Yes. Yeah, in- incremental moves toward, toward a destination. And you could say uh, very, very predictable based on what uh, human behavior is like. Yeah. And that's, that's you one. You have to be, you have to admit the truth about human nature. Yes, exactly. And not be in denial about human nature or only think about the best aspects of human nature and ignore the part of human nature that is the complete opposite. Because if you only look at one side of human nature when you create laws and you don't look at the other side of human nature when you're creating laws, the laws that you end up creating are the precedents that you end up establishing will go into a really dark place. Yeah. And that's one of the aspects that we talked about with the, um, the Shemitah and the Yobel. Because that is an example of hitting the reset button on, on a culture when debts and things became too great. Because one of the, the aspects you have of God's word is, um, as one economist said, that it is not completely free market and it is not completely socialistic. But... What it does say is that there is the property. You respect your property boundaries. You, know, you don't steal because you, those are things that are not yours. They belong to somebody else. 
However, there are the times where people, because of tragedy or because of irresponsibility, get well off the deep end and their debts just snowball to the point that they end up in destitute times. So when those things happen, then you have the reset, the Shemitah, the sabbatical year, and the Yobel, the Jubilee, to reset those things back in. But just like we had talked about in our uh, past two chapters that we have here, especially 27, you have to respect, though, where those things were residing before, who owned those things before. You're not just hitting the reset button and things are just all shuffling back around. There is that particular ownership in there. Now, why is that important? It goes back to one of the things that we had talked about with the connection between the Shemitah, the sabbatical years, the Yobel, and Sinai. Because one of the things you saw at Sinai is that the Lord said, I am here. This mountain is mine. Then later on, at Jericho puts his finger down. This land is mine. So those declarations are saying, why is the distinction of private property important? Is because you thus have the picture that this is somebody else's property, things, and not mine. You respect those boundaries. Because if you then just take things, everything belongs to me. I'm entitled to everything around me. Why are you trying to deny me from the things that I want to have? Well, then you are seeing that over time, these are places that will take you in a bad direction. Because if you are just saying, everything is mine, I am entitled to everything, you are like Job encountering the Lord near the end of that book. And the Lord is saying, did you make this? Did you make that? Did you do this? Did you do that? And thus, you see the, the revelation that comes through at the end where Job just has to say, no, I didn't make any of that stuff. And during the Exodus, they had to be reminded that this food that is provided comes from somewhere, that the one who provides it is the one who is leading them out. And then you see that reinforced with this reinforcement or the, you could say, the uh, re-consecration of the Shabbat to emphasize, hey, you are getting this daily bread six days. But then that next day after, that's just not for you to go around and just grab all you can. Because when you go out, there will be none there. Because whose bread is it? God's bread that he gives to you. So thus, that's one of the lessons that we have with the daily bread 
and with the Exodus and with these time periods of Shemitah and Yobel, the Jubilee, is to remind us that there are the things that we have, but they are the things that we have because of what? Because of God's grace, his favor. He has, through his favor, given us these things. So that's one of the key things that we are reminded of through the book of Leviticus, the book of Vayikra, is that there are the things that are ours and then the things that are the Lord's. But just remember where the things that are ours actually come from. And that we just don't go in to grab the things that are the Lord's because the things that are the Lord's are what? His? What is that term that we use for that? Holy, we call that. Holy meaning separate, set apart, separate from us. Now, praise God that through the book of Vayikra, we are taught what about us in this set-apartness. We can move and be set apart from the world. So, thus that comes into a very interesting thing as we close out on the book of Leviticus. An interesting picture that we have about Leviticus 27 of the vowing the vowing to remain a nation of priests. Now, just a little bit on the vowing part. The word that we have translated in the, here about vow comes from nadir, and it's about setting apart something, an abstention, abstaining from something like the Nazarite vow, and also setting apart some sort of service or even an offering. So a carbon, you set apart that as a nadir or a vow. Now, the other word that's connected with this is Allah, or the, it's uh, translated as the general uttering of oaths. So you are making an Allah or a declaration of a nadir, a vow or a promise. So from that also, when you are making an Allah or a declaration of this nadir or a vow, with that you have the asar, meaning that you are binding yourself, that you are joining with something, you are joining with this nadir, your vow or your promise. And then we get the other thing that's translated in there as the <laughs> karem, you know, the harem is the devotion to destruction. Now, it's very interesting that the devotion to destruction is also in a bit of a vow or a promise for destruction, which is where the New American Standard has that kind of a, a strange <laughs> the way it translates this as uh, like verse 29. No one who has been set apart among men shall be ransomed for he has been uh, he shall surely be put to death. And you're like, that's very bizarre because it fits with the language in the rest of the chapter about a vow. And this is that special term of harem. Now, 
harem, various ways they might say devoted to destruction, like uh, Jericho was harem. It was devoted to destruction. It was set apart for destruction. So thus you go back to that great thing that you have at the end of these books of the Torah where it talks about choose life, choose death. This is more than just, oh, kind of veering off in the wrong direction. Just know that, just like you see in the book of Revelation, after you have the death and sin with thrown into the lake of fire, you have the nadir and the harem. The harem is devoting to destruction. So thus, you don't want to just choose death, choose life. That is the where, where you want to go. So you also, with this, um, some of the words that we have in here about the vow is the shava, or we have it as taking an oath. Because we say Shavuot. Shavuot is a very interesting thing. Because Shavuot, we say, okay, uh, it's the weeks the, or sevens. Because Shavah, seven. And also, it means oath. So thus, you have the connection with the number seven with what? An oath or a, it is reaching its completion. You, the proverbial phrase, you can take it to the bank. That is what the number seven is communicating. So you can take it to the bank. Number seven, Shiva, oath. It will surely happen. So thus you can say why these terms of the Shiva or oath and Nader or vow are very important that you don't approach these things casually. Because as you see here, that's wrapped up in these two ideas of the vow or you promising the thing and the, the shava or you're making an oath that something, you're basically having it co-signed by something else, that it will certainly come to pass. We call that a shava for an oath is like collateralized loan, a mortgage. A mortgage is a shava, so to speak, because if you don't pay your mortgage, what happens? Homeless, they take your house because your promise is based on you paying. And if you don't pay, they take your house. If you have a car loan, a car loan is collateralized against what? The car. And if you don't pay the car loan, what happens? Repo man. <laughs> the repo man comes and your car just disappears. It gets raptured. Woo! Gone. Well, the thing that comes into play with the oath then is that what you are promising to do, do you actually have ownership of it? Which comes into Yeshua's discussion about oaths. So when he was talking about that you don't go into making oaths, because why? With the particular oaths that he's talking about, with the gift on the altar or the altar or the temple or the money in the temple, etc., 
Do you own any of that? No, you don't. So how can you then commit or co-sign it or offer it as collateral? You can't. So thus, that is something that you cannot enter into because you don't actually have ownership of it. But who does have ownership of such things? Yes, the creator of heaven and earth has. So when the creator makes oaths, those are things that you can take to the bank. And why we should be careful about how we approach these things and not too casually. Because when we get down to uh, the, the question of, well, why should anyone then take an, any sort of oath at all? These oaths and these vows are promises. So when we go into them, we shouldn't be just approaching these things lightly. Because do we have control over them? Will we actually pay them? Because when the word says, you will surely pay your vows. Meaning, these are things that when you promise them, you bring them to completion. So thus, when we see in, you see that Yeshua is comparing the kingdom to considering the cost of building a tower and going into battle there in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 33. When you are committing yourself to the Lord, it is like going into a building project. And as it says there in Luke, if you build it and you don't finish it, what then is said? You undertook it, but you could not complete it. So thus it is with your life in God, and with the things that the Lord is building. Because as we see when we get into the Deuteronomy version of these blessings and curses, what do the nations say when Israel is hauled off into exile? Their God is not able, he took them out, but wasn't able to seal the deal. Just took them out, and then they just furthered away into nothingness. So thus, the promise of the return from exile, the promise of the bringing back, the promise of the being born again with Israel, is that the promise has to be brought to completion. Because otherwise, heaven's promises, heaven's oaths mean what? Yeah, mean nothing. Now when we see the section that we are looking at here today, Leviticus 26, verses 40 through 42. A very interesting one to go back over here as we close things out. If we confess their iniquity, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers and their unfaithfulness which they committed against me, and also in their acting with hostility against me, I was also acting with hostility against them to bring them into the land of their enemies. Or if their uncircumcised heart becomes humbled so that they then make amends of their iniquity, 
then I will remember my covenant with Yaakov, and I will remember my covenant with Yitzhak, and my covenant with Avraham as well. And I will remember the land. So what we see here is we remember these promises because why? These promises are the credibility of the kingdom of God. Is God able to actually save? Is God able to actually redeem? Is God able to actually bring you into rest, the land of rest? All of those things. That's why chapter 3 of Hebrews keeps going back again and again and again and again to that passage in Psalm 95 where it says, I swore my wrath. You shall not enter my rest. And that's, you know, you roll back the tape and it goes back into Exodus chapter 17 where it's talking about the passage and that great catchphrase, you know, is the Lord with us or not? That is what the Lord was swearing in his wrath. You will not enter my rest. Because you see then, that what follows from that? The spies go into the land, and we have a, a great uh, 80% vote. The 10 out of the 12 spies, there's no way, we can't do it. It's hopeless. Walls too high, people too big. Nope, can't do it. Can't do it. So, Lord said, well, because you didn't trust me, you're not going in. Your children, your children will go in, but you won't. So then they went around and tried to go in themselves. That is one of the, the fulfillment that they will actually happen. Which, with that promise of the turning from iniquity and be remembered, is one of the bases for the new covenant prophecies that we have there in Jeremiah 31 and in Ezekiel chapter 36. Because those were said to whom? And we sometimes can drag them out of their historical context, but who were they said to? People headed into exile and in exile. Jeremiah, talking to people who were saying, hey, yeah, uh, the end is near. (laughs) Their end as a nation independent of themselves was near. Ezekiel talking to people in exile, going, uh-oh, what happened? So the message to both of those was what? Jeremiah 31, the issue was not with God's law. What was the problem at Sinai? Unbelief, even though the Lord says, even though the Lord said, I was a husband to them. Yet, what? They didn't want to go. They didn't want to go with that covenant there. So, what was then the promise that there would be for this generation in exile? The new heart and a new spirit that was put in them. So then, the promise of that would be that then... There wouldn't be this, who is the Lord question that you see 
what happened at the devolving of Israel down before the exiles. Who is the Lord? Prophesied then everybody would know who the Lord was. And then that the Lord would take their iniquities, which drove the exile, and remember them no more. Who they were before, that heaven would forget, purposely forget, and then bring them back. But just rebooting the old people who led up to the exiles before, just, hey, let's just rewind the tape and play it again. No, it's not a replay of the downfall you know, of Israel. This is the picture of a new people with a new heart and the Spirit of God actually moving, flowing through them. So then, when you see in the apostolic writings there in John chapter 6, verse 37, where Yeshua is praying, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So that discussion we had earlier about those of the nations cleaving on to the Lord and the people of the Lord being brought into the people of the Lord, and then also the people of the Lord from exile being brought back in to the people of God, reconnected again. That is one of the, the desires of heaven, not smite, but reunite. That is the great promise of heaven. So you see in the other passage there in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, passage there of where Yeshua gets up in the synagogue on Shabbat to read, and they give him the scroll of Yeshiahu, Isaiah, and he then reads the passage there from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, to recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And later on he says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So this is language of what? The Yobel, of the release of the Shemitah, the release, the turning back, the taking those debts that we had, even debts against each other. Kind of sounds familiar, you know. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those. Yes. Heaven takes those and turns it over, turns it around, clears off those ledgers of the things that we had against heaven in the same way that we have done so with other people around us. Why? Because heaven is petty and just wants to make sure that you clean up your act first before they'll clean up the relationship with heaven? Remember we had read just a couple of Shabbats ago about the encounter that Tomas had after the resurrection. And he said, and Yeshua said to him, okay, you see and you believe, but blessed are those who don't see and yet believe. 
So this is the great picture that we have of what God is doing with the tabernacle and with the tabernacle become flesh, the presence of God wanting to dwell in the midst of the people. But come as you are, yes, but don't stay as you are. You come as you are, but you get transformed in the process. And we see that what on the day of the Lord, one of the great promises that we have as it closes out Revelation chapter 22, verses 12 and 13. Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And then continuing on a little bit later, he testifies to these things, says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Yeshua. Amen. Maranatha. Come, Lord Yeshua. So, when we take a look at what this whole book of Vayikra was all about, as we start back from the beginning, the lesson of the Mishkan is that this korban, or the karban, it means that thing that approaches, the thing that approaches, that is the Hebrew word that's used for offering in general. There are more specific words for them, but the offering in general. Now, this, this karban it does not remove sin, but through the carbon's movement from when it's coming in the gate of the tabernacle toward where it heads in the tabernacle is to get this message of where is your heart going? Is your heart like David's to dwell in your inner courts? Yeah. Thankfully, he didn't have the great idea like, some later kings in history would, would try to act like a priest and just waltz in and do stuff. But that's where his heart was. And the message of the Mishkan was all about that, of the person coming in, your offering then would go on ahead of you toward the presence of God. And then with Yom Kippur, with these two goats, of the chatat or the, the sin offering, that even though these the karban would bring you close into and toward the presence, there would be a special chatat that would then take the sins, transgressions, and iniquities and remove them from the congregation out. And so it's interesting that when one person has observed that there appears to be a gigantic atbash or a chiastic structure in the book of Vayikra, Leviticus. Because the last two chapters that we just were reading here, talking about vows and promises, that this passage here about the vows, the things that approach the presence of God, where is it? Where are these vows? Okay, but what did we see at the beginning? First seven chapters goes on and on and on and on and on, and on about the, the carbonote, the things that are approaching the presence, and the things at the end, the vows. 
that is about where your promises are, about where your heart is. Now, these vows, are they required? Are the vows required? No. Are you said, you must become a Nazarite? No. These are vows that you are doing because what? You want to be closer to the presence of God. So thus, that should have been the heart of where the carbonate, the offerings, are at the beginning part to get closer to the heart of God, to move in. And so the Leviticus 8 and 9 and 10 talks about the priests, what the priests are doing, and then the consecration of the priesthood and how the the seven days plus the eighth day, then they are consecrated. And the Mishkan, the tabernacle, is put into business. The, The open sign gets turned on. Then you see the chapters we've just been doing in recent weeks here, chapters 21 through 26, also starts out talking about priests again. And then in 23, we were talking about what is Leviticus 23 about? The Moedim, the appointed times of the Lord. These special times in there. And what are the Moedim chock full of? Passover. Unleavened bread. Passover plus seven days of unleavened bread. Seven plus one, eight. Seven sevens. Shavuot. Plus one. Seven sevens plus one. You get into the seventh month. Seventh month. Then you've got the first day. Kicks things off. Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets. Then you've got Yom Kippur, the 10th day. But then what comes? Sukkot, tabernacles, seven days. And Shemini Atzeret, or otherwise the Hebrew word for the assembly of the eighth day. So seven plus eight again in the seventh month. So seven, sevens, eights. Talking a lot about that again. So this picture of time of putting things into operation for the priesthood very interesting picture then what should this perhaps suggest about what these appointed times are because what then in exodus chapter 19 as the people are there at the mountain what is it said of the people that they would become a royal priesthood, a holy nation, holy nation of priests. Yes, there would be a subset, special family out of that nation, but everyone would be a minister, a part of the priesthood. Now, we might think, well, priesthood, the Levi, and then the family of Aharon inside the family of Levi, Well, they were specifically the ones, and they would serve you as well. But what does the nation of priests suggest to you? Because what do priests do? What do the Kohanim do? Teach. Bring people closer to God. So if you have a nation of Kohanim, just broadly speaking, what then would that suggest that they were to do? 
bring the nations closer to God. They were to be a nation in the midst of other nations that would then be taking other nations and then bringing them closer to God. You you see that reflected in uh, Solomon's prayer for the institution of the um, first temple, that he would pray that this would be a house of prayer for all nations. And that then came to be. So that is the very interesting picture that you see then the parallel of Leviticus 11 through 15 about starting about clean and unclean foods and then going into sometimes gruesome detail about uh, the uh, personal conditions that people have that would make them clean this uh, tahor and tame, uh, fit and unfit to approach the presence of God. And parallel to that you see in Leviticus 18 through 20 where you see this uh, often called the holiness codes in there. And that we even have in Leviticus 19 about the um, <laughs> golden rule is in there. They love your neighbor as yourself. So that part wrapped up in this holiness code is that there are things that are tahor, that are fit to approach, and there are things that are tame, that are unfit to approach. But also behaviors that are fit to approach meaning what this is not just this is not just um, check a box though did i did i go to the uh, god's gift registry and make sure that i checked off all the things and make sure i ordered all the things that he had on the list and so if i order a whole bunch of them then he's got to accept me because i ordered all this stuff and checked all his boxes because his behaviors then is what? Coming from the inside of you. It's not just the things from the outside. These are to be reflections of the things that are in the inside of you that are coming forward. So just like we saw at the end of Ikra and the beginning of Ikra, these are the things that are reflecting a desire of the people to get closer to God. So thus, these things about Tahor and Tameh, the fit, the unfit, the clean, the unclean, is all about your picture of wanting to get closer to God, but then realizing that something's got to happen in the process. Something has to happen to you. You just don't waltz right in there. Which then, if you see, is the middle of the atbash or the chiasm. Middle part is Leviticus 16. And 17 also talks about uh, offerings also but 16 being the the key point there of the high priest because remember when it talks about the high priest he had his breastpiece on and the ephod on and what was a part of the breastpiece and on the ephod he had the the stones stones representing what the houses then he had on his shoulders, what? Names, again, bearing, kind of like load on your shoulders, load on, over your heart. So the high priest is bearing in the on his shoulders and on his heart the people of God to into the presence of God. So thus you see the ultimate of what the goal that Vaker is talking about going into the presence of God. 
And that being a part, we, we've mentioned here previously, the people are doing what? They are ana, they are humbling themselves at this particular time period. Not just abstaining from, from food just for the sake of abstaining from food, because people do that when they're training, dieting, whatever. They do that anyway. This is not just abstaining for the sake of abstaining. This is abstaining for the sake of what? Focus. What you're focusing your attention on. The fact that there is something that you cannot deal with. These iniquities. These iniquities against heaven. But there is one who can bear us into the presence of God and cover over these sins, transgressions, and iniquities. That's what pretty much the entire book of Hebrews is focused on, expanding on Leviticus 16, to show that, yes, there is one who will bear us into the presence of God, so that this picture that we have of wanting to go into the presence of God, and then also that who we were before, those sins, transgressions, and iniquities would be removed from the presence of God. So then, if we then get this picture of the carbonotes going in and our sins, transgressions, and iniquities going out, what then does that suggest to you? Release. That if we go in and the baggage that we have goes out, then we are there without the baggage before in the presence of God. So thus, when you talk about redemption, salvation, and now we are at rest. We are then the presence of God. So thus, when you see in Hebrews when it talks about that we can go within co- with confidence through the veil, just like on the Day of Atonement there in Leviticus 16, go in with confidence. It is because the sins, transgressions, and iniquities have left the building. They're gone. So that we're in there, not because of how great we are, but because of how great God is. I mean, so I hope you see that in the midst of these, you see the blessings, the curses, and it looks frightening. It is just the terms of the deal to let us be uh, have a full disclosure of what the real situation is and what is really at stake in this. That heaven does not want to hit the smite button, but wants to bring the whole world together into the presence of God, to be different, to be a different people. So that is a great... A great when you, when you talk about Leviticus, hopefully then it's something that you can communicate as being a book of hope, a book of promise, a book of oaths from heaven that you can take to the bank, that these promises of being together and then having 
those are past removed, that we can be new people. The promise of the new covenant put into action, that that is great news. When we talk about gospel, here you go. One of the great lessons in that. Any last thoughts before we uh, close out here today? Yes, Alex. Valuing of the curious about the valuing in uh, 26, uh, 27. Do, 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 you, do you want to, yourself to be reassessed? Do you want to do well, the higher? Well, uh, I'm getting older. <laughs> I'm getting older, oh, so I'm yes. less valuable. Oh, boy. So, yes. yeah, I mean, there's, you know, he owns this, is what he's saying. And okay, we'll take it a step farther. Here's how much you're actually worth. You yeah. know, man, woman, old, young, whatever. So, there's some pretty mundane facts here about humanity. Yeah, and it, it is it is talking about you know the the realities of life and life of service, but it is not in the sense of a you are less valuable as a person. Right. It is just saying you know if you were to do a valuation of something of property, you're saying okay, this is what it can contribute in there, not that you know, you are totally worthless as a person because someone can contribute more than you can. Just say, I can contribute this and thank God that I can because someone who is a, you know, huge, strong man can do all kinds of things. Someone who's a fast man can do things faster. Someone who's a smart man can do all kinds of things. But what is it that I can contribute? You know, it, do I just want to give all that I am into the picture? That's, that is a, a great message in there that there is the, and we'll see that when we get into the part of uh, Bimidbar or numbers, that a key lesson of that is that each person counts. You count each person because each person counts. Do you have a thought there, Daniel? Go along the lines which way, which way he brought up is that the point being that regardless of who I am or what I am, mm. I'm no greater or less than you. Yes. And vice versa. So no one is greater or less than you are. Yeah. And even though we, we had different skill levels, different whatever, because difference, we're equals in God's eyes. He treats us the same. And we are the same. Yeah, there is a difference between getting very old or very young but you can't have like, well, the king is worth more than the pauper. No, he's not. Right. You're equal. As far as God's concerned, there's no difference between you. You may be old or young, there are differences then. But there's physically, as far as you, the similar ages, you're equal. doesn't matter what you are. Yeah, and that's one of the key lessons of the, uh, the census as well. Is that, you know, it's not the rich people who are being valued more than anything else. Yes. Yeah, Jeff, I just want to uh, thank you, man, for this message. It's, it, it's so relevant and so pertinent with what oh, we see going on in our own country, in Europe. Uh, I mean, where people are walking in the wrong direction. I mean, Putin being just the extreme of what's going on that's wrong. Right. We're doing plenty that's wrong in this country, too. Mm-hmm. We just have to look at what happened in Texas a couple of days ago. Correct. As well as many, many other things. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's very pertinent and, and, and I think sobering, actually, for us to to keep walking in this way of righteousness. Yes. Yes. I just wanted to say that when you read all of this history, there is a remnant Mm. that did not do evil. Yeah. 
there is a remnant that stayed true. And God, Yeshua, understands that. And you, even though you have to live through it, you are separate from it. Mm. And he honors us. So it, what it says to me is that I have to make sure that my heart is pure. That even if all this catastrophic stuff is happening, if we keep ourselves wholly set apart, that we'll have to go through it. I mean, even though I had to go through the flood, he just survived, right? Mm. But we have, that, we have that assurance that we are not going to be destroyed. Yeah, correct. And when we go through our personal trials, family trials, economic trials, what then do we show other people about where our rock truly is in the midst of this? If we lose everything, what is our rock that we cling to in the midst of it? Because as Yeshua told with this parable, you know, if you are building not on a rock but on sand, um, yeah, when true hardship comes, it just gets swept away. Whatever that you think you've built just gets swept away. Yes, Anne? Equal in that value of each other in, in the Lord's eyes, but the leadership has the works that will be judged. Is that not true? The leadership what? Leader, leaders have a different, I mean, it's a different category of measurement. <laughs> yeah, more is, more is really required. Right. Yeah, more is required. So we're equal, but in the works area is where destruction could come with what you didn't do or what you did do. I mean, you know, not the destruction of what you burn up or something, right? Right. Right. And, you know, for, for those who are the, the leaders, those that are the judges, and, and, you know, at the time that you had the, the Mishkan, yeah. those who are the priests, just think of that kind of responsibility. If you're slacking off or acting reprehensibly, and we have records of that to the sons of Eli there at the gate of the tabernacle that made the tabernacle a loathsome place to go, what then have you done? You've driven people away from their only source of help. And that is why you know, any, any people who are aspiring to leadership should, we, we call it public servants, and we kind of take it glibly. My goodness, you, you should really be humble. And when you think about um, qualities of leadership, um, we should be, be careful to not go for the most charismatic, but to go for what is more character, not charismatic. Because people can, we have the proverbial used car salesman. Although it seems like these days used car salesmen are, are coming into great favor because everybody wants to use car. But the proverbial used car salesman is what? They're trying to convince you to get something you don't want and pay way too much for it to basically swindle you by talking fast and shmarmy and grinning a lot, etc. But with the character, it is what? You're not getting an act. You're not getting a show. You are getting someone who's concerned. And then it says, okay, I'm going to 
fight for you and do what needs to be done. Yes, watch out for, for character assassination, which is why you see so much put on the Torah about you know, the um, slandering, uh, tail-bearing, etc., because that's uh, tearing down of one's character. And we have a special, um, special subset of character assassination we call blaspheming, because that is then taking the character of God and dragging it down. So it's like having a lifeboat while the boat is going down and you start shooting holes in the lifeboat. Well, then what? If you destroy people's only hope of rescue, then where do they go? Where, where do they go? They have nowhere to go if you have destroyed their dependence on where their true um, help comes from. Well, let's uh, close things out in prayer. Father God, we thank you for giving us your words of hope. And Father, we just ask that you guide us in coming into your presence. Father, we thank you for covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And we thank you for giving us this great privilege of coming into your presence through your Son, Yeshua. And Father, we just ask that you guide us in being a light into the world that we can show everyone that your way is the best way and that they should choose life. Father, we thank you for these things in the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel. Dot info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel dot info.